Welcome back to Between Two Wings. I'm your host, Emily Norman. And this episode, we have combat veteran and former U.S. Air Force Thunderbird and F-16 pilot, Michelle Mace Kieran. Michelle, first and foremost, thank you so much for your service. And as always, thank you for chatting with me today. Oh, absolutely. I'm excited for this one. This is definitely my audience. So yeah. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, for sure. So behind me, I have a view that I believe you're becoming a little bit more familiar with, uh, which is watching air shows from the ground. Uh, this is actually at Sun and Fun watching uh, the current Thunderbird team. And I think I saw that you got to go see them for the first time this year at the Pacific Air Show lately. I did. That was so I went to Oshkosh this year. So that was really the first show I went to the season. Obviously, the Thunderbirds weren't performing there. And then the only other show I've been to was the Pacific Air Show where they were the headliner. And so that was my first time seeing this year's team fly since I helped train them up last fall. So it was super cool to see it all come together. Yeah, definitely. So first of all, what was that experience like going to Oshkosh as your first on like boots on the ground air show? Like that is the holy mecca of air shows in general. But what was that experience like to just be sitting there and watching performers versus being on the performer side of things? It was so different. So I grew up about an hour and a half from there. I'm from Northern Wisconsin, but oh, nice. I wasn't in an aviation family. So I, I think I knew about Oshkosh eventually, but I never went. So first time Oshkosh attendee, which people are, I was like, wait, what? You were a Thunderbird pilot and from Wisconsin, you've never been to Oshkosh. Uh, it was in- insane. There was just so much going on there. I enjoyed it more than I think seeing more of a traditional air show with the demo teams because I'm very familiar with that. And this was just all new. And the community there is absolutely incredible. Yeah, that's one thing that I think I love the most going out there and being able to chat with pilots from all different like industries and find the most insane things that you've never seen before. It really it's what makes this special. Yeah, absolutely. And I got to ride in the back of a P-51 while I was there which I'd never done that before. And that was my first time in a cockpit since I did my last F-16 flight in December. And I had been telling myself that I didn't miss it at all, that I was, you know, grateful for the break, that it was really intense. I needed some time to decompress. I got in the back of the P-51. We took off. And as soon as we did a barrel roll, I was just like a kid in the backseat. I was like, oh crap, I definitely missed this. It's so much fun. Yeah, no, especially that experience in the P-51. I'm very jealous of that. But so I know you've come up on, it's almost in the year anniversary of your last flight uh, with the Thunderbirds. Walk us through that. I mean, I bet that's so bittersweet. Lots of emotions, um, you know, end of one chapter onto the next. Yeah, the last flight was uh, surreal, I think is the best word for it. I almost got a little bit emotional while I was waiting for the crew chiefs to pin the jet right before I shut down. But the strange thing is I walked away by choice. So it's kind of this, this inner conflict a little bit because it definitely is hard on your body pulling G's all the time. It definitely was a very high ops tempo. I was gone all the time. I was ready to focus on my family a little bit more. There are all the demands that come with being an active duty military pilot. And I was ready for a shift. And I was really excited about what I'm doing now and what I was stepping into. But that was also my life for over a decade. So 13 years on active duty. And that entire time was pilot training, then flying the F-16. So it was surreal. It was, it's still surreal, honestly, that it's been almost a year. I feel like I just time traveled. This Mm -hmm. year has gone so fast. So many amazing things have happened. 
um, with my business and just all the people I've gotten to connect with outside the military. It's been really rewarding and really incredible. So I don't think about it often and I, I don't regret the decision. It's kind of like a chapter I really enjoyed, but I was ready for a new chapter. So I try to, you know, never regret things and just be grateful for where I am and excited about where I'm going. Yeah, definitely. And before we kind of dive into, you know, what you've pivoted to, which is quite, quite incredible. And you've really built up such like a network and business for yourself. Let's talk a little bit about those, those early days, um, applying for the Thunderbirds, getting accepted. I know you don't just go around with a hat. Everyone puts their name in of who wants to be on the Thunderbirds. They draw it and, you know, well, you're done. Like, what is the application process like? Yeah, that's a great question because it actually changed while I was on the team. So when I applied, you put in your paper application, which I think mine was almost 50 pages. It was all the performance reports, all of my check rides, uh, letters of recommendation, a statement of why I wanted to be on the team. It was it was pretty comprehensive. And then from that, they picked 12 people as semifinalists, brought us all out to an air show weekend where we sh- uh, shadowed the current team. We got to see, you know, the schedule, the behind the scenes, the demands, because they also want to make sure you know what you're getting into because it is mm-hmm. pretty unique. Um, and there's this unique public facing PR side of things that you don't have in a normal F-16 squadron. And we did a few interviews. Then from there, you go home for a few weeks, maybe a month, and you find out if you made it to the finals, which was now down to six people. The finalists, we got brought back for another show weekend, did more interviews, one of which is a panel interview with all 12 of the current Thunderbird officers, which is very stressful. It's funny being on the other side of it and having done several of them from being on the panel, but that was definitely very intimidating. Um, interview with the wing commander who's a general or a brigadier general and several other key players on the team. And then you go home and you wait again to find out if you made it or not. And I got a phone call while I was at work. Actually, I was uh, soft that day, which is supervisor of flying. So one of the things you do first thing in the morning is drive the truck out on the runway, just check for FOD, make sure there's nothing weird going on before the jets start taxiing for the morning. And I just on the runway sweep. So I'm in like the government truck with the orange light on the top. And I was out of the control movement area. I was just on the edge of the ramp about to exit the airfield completely. And my phone rang and I saw it was the executive officer from the Thunderbirds. So I knew what it was about. So I just pulled over in the <laughs> truck, the light's still going on the top. And I answered the phone. And that's when they told me that I got hired and that I've been hired as a solo. So that was how we did it. When I got hired, the team quite a while ago used to do flying tryouts, but they had stopped doing those for whatever reason. And so in 2021, we decided to bring those back. So everyone that got hired for this year's team actually did a flying tryout, um, which was interesting to see kind of the results of that. And the Thunderbird flying is just so different than mm-hmm. any other flying you do. Even the people that were already flying the Viper, the F-16, it was a lot to learn. But it really shows how people handle stress, how much preparation they put in. Like, Do they know the radio calls? Do they know what happens when? Do they know the formation references? Even if they're not good at it, because no one's good at it at first. <laughs> um, so yeah, everyone got to fly a flight with one of the current team members in the backseat evaluating. So we brought that back and 
they did it again this year for the people that just got hired for next year. So we'll see how long that sticks around, but it's evolved a little bit over the last three years. Yeah, I can imagine. And I bet every, you know, aviator and app geek out there would love to be a fly on the wall for this entire tryout process, um, especially come out and watch some of the, the flying tests. Um, so what, something you kind of hit on is that the flying is really different than, you know, what you were used to doing as a normal F-16 pilot. And then also that some of these pilots weren't even F-16 pilots before. So, you know, what is that kind of transition period like for, you know, for you specifically, and then also for other pilots who are transitioning to a complete different aircraft at the same time? Yeah, so that's what we call training season. And it starts after you've been hired and you move out to Las Vegas, which is where the team's based out of here at Nellis. And you move out in like September, November, or sorry, September, October timeframe and start flying in November. And by March, you're doing your first air show. So that's pretty quick because right, the holidays are in there. There's a few breaks. Um, so it's not a lot of time and the spin-up has to happen very quickly. So the people that are coming from other fighter aircraft that aren't F-16s, they also go through what we call a TX course, which is just a transition course. So they'll go to one of the locations that teaches brand new F-16 pilots like Luke Air Force Base or Holloman um, in Phoenix and then down in New Mexico. And they'll do a very truncated F-16 course. So they aren't flying their first flight in an F-16 as a Thunderbird. Um, So they have a little bit of background, but it's a very small amount. I can't tell you off the top of my head how many hours they come out of there with, but it's something like 15. It's it's not a lot. And (laughs) now they're they're flying F-16s very close together, pushing the performance limits. So we do put someone in the backseat for the first few rides until we feel like it's not unsafe anymore, where they're doing things that are dangerous. They're at least assessing the change that they need to make to stay in formation or to avoid hitting the other aircraft. They're still going to be wide. They're still not going to look good, but now they're safe to fly on their own. So that happens fairly quickly. And then it just takes so much repetition to get to what you actually see at an air show. So they'll start, you know, 5,000 feet up with a 5,000 foot floor, just trying to fly like a wedge type formation, which is, you know, the lead jet out here and the other jet kind of just hanging back here and they'll do loops and rolls over and over until you can get closer and closer. And pretty soon you're able to fly pretty close to formation at 500 feet with minimal deviations. Then they might bump it down to 2000 feet, then a thousand feet, then 500. And as solos, we eventually were got, we're down to a hundred feet as our minimum. So there's essentially no room for air at that point. So you can never make deviations low. And so at higher altitudes in training, we hold people to, if you're making deviations below the floor, you're not ready to drop to a lower altitude. Mm-hmm. You can make all sorts of deviations in and out of formation. Your maneuvers can look not great, but if you're going through the floor, that's where it's a safety issue. So that's the big thing with stepping down to lower altitudes. So it's kind of just a building block approach. And I think in those, what, four months, five months, you fly somewhere like 120 flights. So it's a lot. You're you're flying a ton. Yeah, I can't even imagine the great experiences all around being on the Thunderbird. So you had mentioned you're you're constantly pulling G's, probably way more than the average F-16 is pilot, and just so much more frequently. I mean, you guys are doing air shows every week, you're constantly training. 
Uh, what effect does that have or has that had on you? Yeah. So you, the F-16 pulls nine G's regardless of mm -hmm. if it's in the Thunderbirds or not, depending what loadout is on it. But in a normal fighter squadron, you're really only hitting that when you're doing the BFM mission, which is dogfighting. And you're only doing that a few times throughout the year or whatever training phase is. So you'll do several of those flights a year, but they're pretty spaced out. There's no point where you're flying 120 flights in five months, four months, and every single one is high G. Mm -hmm. And as the left solo, which was the position I flew, I had the max turn, which is that level 360 degree turn and afterburner. And then I also had vertical rolls, which is where you point up and spiral up to 15,000 feet. Both of those maneuvers would pull up to nine Gs. I tried to keep it more around eight just for the sake of my body. Um, so it's, I would say the highest G profile that anyone in the Air Force is flying as far as volume. Um, it definitely has an effect on your body for sure. Your neck and your back, it's compression, right? So having eight to nine times your body weight pushed down on your spine over and over, uh, you have to do some things to combat that with strength training and just stretching and trying to lead a healthy lifestyle, but it does eventually start to accumulate and take an effect. Yeah. I can't even imagine how that can <laughs> build up over time. Oh man. It seems like there was a lot of benefits that you found from being on the Thunderbirds that wasn't exactly including the flying side. For sure. So a huge part of the team's mission is inspiration. So there's a recruitment side of it, but then there's your ability to inspire people that might never want to be in the military or be a fighter pilot, but they're just able to see this really in-your-face representation of what can be done when people push themselves and people work together in a tight-knit team. And it's really, really motivating for people. So especially as the only woman flying on the team at the time for all three years I was there, there were all of these girls and I guess women of all ages, but especially young women who could see themselves in me. And so I was definitely in a unique position where I could connect with them different than my peers could. And that was so rewarding to have those one-on-one -on -one interactions where, especially with little kids, where I would see, you know, the mom would drag the little girl up to the autograph line because she's probably shy like I was when I was a kid and be like, look, she just flew that jet you watched. She was the one that was upside down. And even if the little kid wouldn't say anything, because a lot of times they were so shy, they wouldn't. <laughs> the look on their face was just so cool because I could see this kind of awe where they realized what they could do in the world was bigger than what they had thought just a few minutes ago. And so to have that impact on people was incredibly rewarding. Yeah. And I mean, rewarding is probably an understatement with how that would just make you feel. And I think it's also been a little bit of a base for how you've decided to pivot um, out of the Air Force. It sounds like, um, you know, I don't have personal experience with this, but when military pilots or even people who are flying on the civilian side, just walk away from flying they're not really sure what to do. This might be their main focus and craft that they've honed for their entire working career. Um, what was that like for you when you decided to walk away and look at what's next? I think why it's felt fairly smooth for me is because I really enjoyed that. I'm kind of a high achiever, I guess is a way to put it. Like I like to push myself and chase down goals. And I had done that and I had accomplished the goal of initially becoming a fighter pilot. And then I'd accomplished 
flying for the Thunderbirds, which eventually became a goal later in my career. Uh, but it was never my identity. And sometimes it's hard to explain because what I do now, I do talk about what I did a lot, but it's not that I'm hanging on to this as like the good old days. And I wish we could go back and I could throw that pigskin over the mountain, you know, like talking <laughs> yeah. about that high school football game, uh, Napoleon Dynamite reference there. But love it. <laughs> uh, it's more that I found it is super rewarding. And while on the team, I kind of identified this other part that I loved that I found fulfillment in besides just being the pilot in the airplane. And so it wasn't that the Air Force and active duty and the F-16 were pushing me away other than the physical demands on your body, which was causing me some back pain. Um, it was more that I realized I was in this unique spot coming off the team, coming off of all these people I'd been able to impact, especially for three years, because it's normally two. So I did an extra bonus year due to the pandemic. I was in this spot where I felt pulled to do something more. And I wanted to change people's lives in a positive way, leave a positive impact for them. And there's all kinds of great aviation jobs, including going to fly for the airlines. But I just felt like there was something more where I could impact people directly. And that's why I decided to create Upside Down Dreams and use my story to help do that. Yeah, I think one thing you've also identified and you share a lot on social is that, um, you know, people who are military pilots or just pilots in general and really can hone their skills as leaders um, and deal with a lot of different skill sets that we've all just kind of acquired over the years. So it's really inspirational to see you make those ties and push people uh, to you know, step outside their comfort zone and find something different outside of their, their flying lives. For sure. There's been other fighter pilots who have considered leaving and going to do something else and have kind of had mixed feelings on going to fly for the airlines. And I've talked to a few of them. They've been like, what else would I go do? All I, all I'm good at is flying airplanes. And I want to like slap them upside the head and be like, that's not all you're good at. Yeah. A, you've spent over a decade in the military as an officer. So there's all kinds of skills that come with that. But also being in aviation, you become very good at performing under stress. You become very good at compartmentalizing things and just getting things done. You become very good at risk assessment. Like there's so many skills that translate into other areas. And I can't tell you how many executives and CEOs that I work with now that also are pilots. So I think there's a lot of transferable business skills and drive that go between the two. So I imagine if it goes from CEOs towards being a pilot, there's probably a lot of pilots that have similar aspirations and skills that would translate into the business world as well. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more. So you brought up your flying during the pandemic, which I kind of forgot, you know, you guys were still having to train and maintain proficiency and, you know, maybe one day you're going to get the call that, okay, we can go back to air shows and you have to figure out how that, how that's going to be. But what was that like for you guys? Cause that was pretty early on in air show season. I know we were going to go to some, and then we were on the fence and you know, that year played out how it did. So yeah, I think we were, you know, kind of just a subset of America all going through the same thing, just in a different form. The timing couldn't have been more interesting, I guess. We, you know, went through this intense training season where it's almost like 
opening game day is that first air show, right? There's all this hype around it. You finally get to go do this thing you've worked so hard for. Uh, and then it just didn't happen. So, I mean, that's an understatement. It was literally our first air show of the season. Our advanced pilot number eight had already left uh, for the sh- first show, which was in Texas. Our C-17 was there with all our equipment and luggage mm-hmm. loaded up. We were briefing for the cross-country flight to take the other jets to Texas from Vegas. And I remember Thunderbird 1, who we called Boss, was just like, what do you think about this pandemic thing? Like, do you think this is going to be a deal? Like, should we not do an autograph line so we're not like all touching each other? Should we, like, we started to talk about it. And he's like, let's call Flack, which is the call sign of our advanced pilot, and see what the air show is saying. Like, are they still going to do this thing? Because stuff was starting to cancel. I think the mm-hmm. NBA just canceled their season. And yeah. we're like, okay, this is getting real. And he's like, no, I think the air show is still a go. We wait another hour and he's like, well, they're discussing it not being a go. And we're like, okay, let's let's slip to the right 24 hours. We'll show up one day later. Let's just let this play out for 24 hours and see what happens. Within 24 hours, that show had canceled. We had all been sent home. The Air Force had put a stop movement in effect. So we had to figure out how to get number eight home, like get a memo signed by someone with high rank to be like, oh, yes, no. you can do one flight to come home. Um, and like all, everything was shut down. No one was going anywhere. The next show canceled, the next show canceled. And pretty soon it's just months of no air shows. And I think we spent several weeks, maybe three weeks at home teleworking, which we do have some ground jobs that involve email and stuff, but you can only do those for so long as the fighter pilot teleworking quickly becomes an oxymoron. We're just like, what do I do with my hands? Yeah. Um, And that's when we started to talk about we still needed to fly. We still needed to maintain proficiency. We had just gotten to the point where we could do a show, but that skill was very perishable still because we're still early in the season. So not flying for weeks was really setting us back. And so we started figuring out COVID protocol and how people could avoid each other and do shift work and all this stuff, but we needed to start flying again. So we started flying local practices. And then we had a kind of a group text where people were joking about like all these things we could do where we would still get airborne and still could impact people. And I think number four at the time was like, we we're just joking. He's like, let's do a flight around the world. Like, let's go inspire <laughs> some people, which obviously is ridiculous. And then someone's like, let's go fly over New York City. Let's go fly over Washington, D.C., all this stuff. And we were kind of kidding. And then within a few days. I think the leadership got pulled into the conversation. It went up the chain of command to like higher headquarters, Air Force. And they're like, start planning it. And by what, April, May, we were doing America Strong, which was all of these city flyovers across the country. We joined together with the Blue Angels to do a whole, I think it was over a seven hour flight up and down the Eastern seaboard hitting Atlanta, Baltimore, DC, Boston, Philly, New York, all at 500 to a thousand feet, close formation, smoke on. And all these people, we could see them sometimes if we were in a turn when you're on the wing and you're looking at the airplane next mm-hmm. to you and you can look through it. If you're in a turn, you can see people on the ground. And especially at like hospitals where there were parking ramps with people would be up in scrubs on the top of them and you could see them and some of the most challenging flying I did on the team, actually in my career, some of the most challenging flying, but also some of the most rewarding. It was so cool when we would land mm-hmm. and you get all these messages 
from people just with the most heartfelt stories about how that was such a beacon of hope and such a terrible time. Yeah, I remember the Blue Angels came to Houston and it was, it you know, our air, our air shows were canceled. I was always love looking forward to air show season, seeing these Jets perform. So it's kind of, you know, it's definitely a downer that you don't get to do this part of your job that you love and look forward to every year. And so when they came by, it was probably the best day. <laughs> yeah, and what was cool is that all these people that aren't air show enthusiasts that don't know much about aviation, like in the middle of New York City, got this exposure to it. And so- mm-hmm. I think that both teams impact that year, like number wise, the number of people that we reached that year was more than a normal air show season. Yeah, definitely. Well, all from a group text, the the power of group text, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think it was like late in the evening. Everyone had had a few beverages because that's what you did during quarantine, right? It's like mm-hmm. you drank coffee until it was acceptable to switch to wine or whatever. And like, let's do this. Let's do this. And we we're all just kind of bored and and that's what came to fruition. So it was it was pretty cool to see. Amazing. And I know, uh, so on your you know, longer flights, um, your cross-country flights, you guys are actually using ForeFlight, right? Yeah, for sure. So we all fly with EFBs now, which was great because you have never seen something more comedic than someone in a cockpit the size of an F-16 trying to open a chart and find a fix on a map when you're going <laughs> 350 knots with a really not great autopilot. It's, it was just ridiculous. You'd be out there and like, it's impossible. So having four flight on EFBs and being able to search things was huge. Being able to pull coordinates was huge. Mm-hmm. And then we would have our ADSBs. We could see traffic, which was great, especially during all those city flyovers. That was definitely a thing. Even though there weren't a lot of people airborne, there were a lot of general aviation that, pilots that heard about what we were doing and tried to map out our flight path and get airborne so they could see us from the air. Don't do that. That (laughs) caused some trauma for us in the air when a Cessna at 120 knots cuts across our flight path and we're going 400 in formation. That happened many times. Um, So we started to see more and more people and where we planned out our holds, um, just being kind of like co-altitude right in that spot. We're like, this is not a coincidence at this point because no one else is airborne. Um, so it was great for traffic, just every weather, you know, flying cross country mm-hmm. weather is a huge concern for us, obviously dealing with rendezvous with a tanker to get air fueling done. So weather was a huge, huge thing. And, and there were points on cross countries where it was also just nice for entertainment, just to like zoom in and be like, Look at that beautiful Alpine Lake. What's it called? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going <laughs> to go hike there someday, like write it down. Or like, what am I, what town am I flying over? And just to be able to look at all that stuff real time was, was really helpful. Burns yeah, I, guess, I guess it doesn't matter if you're in a 172 or an F-16, a long cross country is still sometimes a long cross country where you need a little entertainment. Yeah. If it's a five hour flight, it's still a five hour flight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I know you haven't flown um, since your you know last flight. Um, with the Thunderbirds until Oshkosh with your amazing P-51 experience. But what what does flying look like for you now? Are there chances of you getting back into it somehow, whether that be general aviation? Maybe you'll be the one who's trying to buzz around and find the Thunderbirds flight path one day. Like what what's the possibilities there? Yeah, so I think I did need a cooling off period and I really dove into creating my business right away. And that's been a full-time job to say the least. Mm -hmm. I've been a steep learning curve. 
but I also did really enjoy that flight. And I've been flying with one of my friends occasionally who owns a twin Comanche and talk about, about as different as you can get from an F-16. I'm like, what is this madness? And I started flying it in the summer, late in the summer. So it was hot in Vegas, high density altitude, very bumpy, very turbulent. And then every landing was like 20 knots of crosswind. I was just like, this is not as easy as I had imagined. Like I can talk on the radio. I can fly headings and altitudes point A to point B. Like all of that was very easy. Uh, Understanding the systems takes a little bit because I'm just not used to props and mixture and feathering and all the things, but it's fairly simple system. But then landing is just so different. The sight picture is incredibly different. The airplane gets pushed around a ton. The F-16 weighs about 30,000 pounds. I think the Twin Comanche is like 2,500 pounds. Yeah. So I'm like, where is it going? Why is it drifting? Like, oh, like what is happening? So I think it was a nice uh, ego check and GA appreciation to get in that cockpit and be like, okay, this is going to take some practice. So anyone who's new and feels uh, a little bit in over their head and like they should be learning faster than they are. I have 2000 hours in that airplane and (laughs) I struggled with the twin Comanche. So (laughs) it's okay. You'll get there. Um, But I would love to get into some aerobatics. And I think the biggest draw is just the freedom that comes with it of being able to hop in an airplane with my husband and my stepson, who's about to be 10. And Vegas is such a good hub for outdoor stuff. Mm-hmm. Like within a short flight, you have like Yosemite and Tahoe and Moab. And there's just all these amazing things that take a full day to drive there, but are only a couple hour flight. And so maybe the business will do really well. My dream airplane would probably be a vision jet, but of course not doing that <laughs> well yet. A little on the expensive side. So if, you know, they're looking to sponsor a pilot, I'm available. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, uh, maybe we can start off with, you know, like a, a Piper Cub or Tri-Pacer or something slower, but still an airplane. Yeah, I'm used to thinking fast. So I don't think that's the issue. I think it's, the, <laughs> it's all the stick and rudder skills are just so mm-hmm. different coming from a digital flight control system and a heavy airplane, a really sleek aerodyna- aerodynamic airplane, and then going to something that's a lot more old school. <sighs> yeah, for sure. Well, Michelle, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do next on your business side and then also on your GA flying um, experiences. And I just want to say thank you again so much for taking time to chat with us. I know you've got so much going on with um, all the things. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. And everyone, thank you so much for tuning into this episode Between Two Wings. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.